the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, we were by nature objects to wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do God's good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You may be seated. Thank you, Crystal. Um, I don't have any PowerPoint to go with this this morning. I was not sure that we had a projector available this morning, but uh, that's okay. If you're visual and you need something to look at, there's a cross right there and, uh, and a banner, two banners reminding us that Christ is risen. And I'm not sure we need more than that to look at, frankly. Today in our study of Ephesians, we are coming to one of the towering passages in Scripture. Um, not that it's a more important passage, but here you have Christianity in a single paragraph. You've got the story of God's redeeming work from Genesis to Revelation, what God has done for mankind in just a few sentences. Uh, here in these verses, we see a, a, a pair of images before and after and it's ourselves that we see. And it is both profoundly humbling and profoundly elevating. Sir Winston Churchill once said of his rival, Clement Attlee, Mr. Attlee is a very humble man. And then he said, but then he has a great deal to be humble about. Uh, not like my brother who used to joke, I'm not conceited, but I have every reason to be. When we read Ephesians chapter 2, we see ourselves and we see that we have no reason for conceit, but a great deal to be humble about. But we also see God and what he has done, and thus we see how elevated we are, and thus we have a great deal to be glad about as well. Stephen Curtis Chapman has said, in the gospel, we discover we are far worse off than we thought and far more loved than we ever dreamed. And that's true. 
God, in loving grace expressed in Christ Jesus, has brought us from death to life and has given us kindness instead of wrath. Uh, Ephesians 2 begins by holding up a mirror and showing us ourselves apart from Jesus. And it is not a pretty sight. Spiritually dead, with sin as a way of life, captive to Satan, and deserving of judgment. And this is not, by the way, the conclusion that we would reach about ourselves if we relied on the art and the education and the religion and the philosophy and the media of this world. This is something we only learn about ourselves from God and what he has said of us in his word. Unless God reveals the truth about ourselves, we are blind men, formulating doctrines about color and light, but being unable to see. But God has spoken, and he has revealed the truth. And what he says is, first of all, that we were dead in sins. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead in sin. Sin does not just pollute us. It's not mere sickness or dysfunction that needs to be corrected. Sins are not just weaknesses or mistakes. Sin is a killer. And those who sin are dead spiritually. The inner person is a rotting corpse. It's an awful picture. That was our condition. Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. To walk, biblically, has to do with a way of living. People either walk in righteousness or in sin. People walk in humility or in pride. It's how we move through each day of our lives. And what we read here is that we walked in sin. That was our pattern. That was our lifestyle. Evil was the norm. Sinfulness permeated not only who we were, but therefore what we did. The same description of the people in Noah's day that we read in Genesis chapter 6, where it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's, that's pretty all-encompassing. But it wasn't just them in Noah's days. It was us. We walked in sin. And by doing so, we were merely following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's an unusual phrase, the prince of the power of the air. But the air here, in this phrase, simply means the unseen realm all around us on this earth. And it's the territory of the demonic forces, the evil spiritual power. There is a class of beings in rebellion against God, and they are present, and they are active in our world. And these beings have a prince, whom the Bible calls elsewhere the God of this world, the devil, Satan. He's real. Evil spirits are real. Their influence is real. And to walk in sin is to follow or be in allegiance to or to be led by Satan. And that's how it was for us. Satan was our leader. We were captive to him, whether we knew it or not, whether we thought we were independent or not. 
To walk in the ways of sin is to follow after Satan. And then to make matters worse yet, because of all that, the Bible says that we were by nature ingrained in us, in our DNA, part of who we were, we were by nature children of wrath. I want to notice the word children there. Uh, The New International Version speaks in verse 2 of those who are disobedient, and in verse 3 of objects of wrath. But the English Standard Version and the uh, the New American Standard Version translate it correctly when they say in verse 2, sons of disobedience, and in verse 3, children of wrath. Uh, The Greek words that the Apostle Paul used when he wrote this were very specifically the words for sons and children. They are family words, and they indicate that our gene pool was a corrupt one, that we were a part of the family of sin, that our heritage was sin, that our destiny, our inheritance, would be wrath. Okay, we were belonging to a family of sin and of Satan. Children of wrath. Divine wrath is an inevitable reality for sin. The idea of God's wrath makes us uncomfortable. When we think of wrath as a vicious, fly-off-the-handle, petulant, or brutal and violent exercise of despotic power. Surely God is not like that, we say. And we are right. He is not. And the Bible does not ask us to accept that God's wrath is of that sort. J.I. Packer writes this, God's wrath is never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it is entirely predictable and is never subject to mood, whim, or caprice. It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. Our world wants God to compromise with evil, I think. We want him to let a certain amount of evil go in light of our general goodness. So-and-so isn't such a bad person. Surely God can forgive and not punish. But this fails on two fronts. For starters, for God to let sin go, any sin, would be to violate his perfect and righteous character. A God who did so would not be morally perfect or morally just. But secondly, it's that kind of reasoning, well, so-and-so is not such a bad person. Surely God can forgive them. It makes it sound like people, or some people, or maybe most people, are basically good and should not be judged for their sins. But on the authority of God's word, this simply isn't so. The picture in Ephesians makes it clear that the sinner is dead in sin, a child of disobedience, a follower after Satan. And if that's not clear enough, Romans 3 says explicitly, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God, all have turned away, no one does good, not even one. So the biblical answer to the question of whether God will judge good people is that there are no good people. 
Only sinners. Doesn't that sound awful? But think about how we frame that. And then consider how the Bible frames it. We think even non-Christians are good. They're generous. They're good parents. Not everyone is a killer or a rapist. They don't do all the evil they can all the time, kicking their dogs, swearing at their kids, cheating on their taxes. I mean, nobody's perfect, but we're not all bad. There are good people. And if that is the frame of reference, we would be right, and God would be unfair to say no one does good. But God in his word doesn't frame it that way, ranking some sins as more or less horrific and therefore some sinners as better or worse than others. Romans 14, verse 23, in a discussion about some other finer points of Christian practice, makes this summary statement at the end, and it's a principle that applies, I think, totally. It says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, biblically, there are not varying degrees or many sins of varying degrees of sinfulness. There is, at bottom, really only one sin that can be committed. Now, please hear this. There is essentially only one sin, and it is a sin of the grossest magnitude that we can imagine, and it's this, to not recognize and honor the lordship of God. The only sin there is is the sin of not honoring God as Lord. And all sins are merely expressions or living out that one great sin. Before I kill someone, I have already determined, consciously or otherwise, that no matter what's right or wrong, I'm going to do what I'm going to decide to do. I am Lord. And before I lie or lust, same thing. First, I decide I am Lord of my life. And everything else, for better or for worse, is just an outworking of that decision. And even the good, then, that I do is not, strictly speaking, good. It might be beneficial to someone, it might be helpful, but if I do it as an expression of my own lordship over my own life, it is sin. And that's what the Bible means when it says that no one does good. No one. And Ephesians 2 includes everyone. Verse 1, you were dead in sins, meaning the Gentiles to whom Paul is writing. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived, meaning the Jews, of whom Paul was one. And then we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Everyone is included, Jew, Gentile, all of mankind. Dead in sin, children of wrath. That is who we were. And maybe for some of us, that is who we are today. And if that is, if that is you, living consciously outside the lordship of God in the name of God, I tell you what no one else might ever tell you. The crisis that you are facing is unimaginably severe. That to be under the wrath of God for sin is a horrific prospect. And if anyone, by the way, tries to play off the love of Jesus in the Gospels as over against the wrath of God in the Old Testament, 
Consider these words from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, speaking of Jesus. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Wrath at the hands of a holy and righteous is nothing to trifle with. And that was all of us without exception. Me. You. But notice how verse 4 begins with the two sweetest words in all of Scripture. But God. We were lost, dead, under wrath, captive to sin and to Satan. What could we do? Dead people cannot save themselves. People who walk in sin have nothing in themselves to move them Godward or have even a spark of repentance. We were incapable of even the slightest Godward inclination. And if it depended on us in any way to change things, we would, every one of us, plunge off a cliff into destruction. If it depended on us, we had nothing. It was hopeless. By nature, children of wrath, there was no way we could change it. But God, now that's different. What if it didn't depend on us? What if the God, who is so perfectly good that he must obliterate sin completely so perfectly just that his judgment on sin must be almost unspeakably severe in keeping with the unspeakable offense of refusing his lordship? What if the God who is so infinitely powerful that no one could possibly stand when he exercises his power in wrath against sin, what if this God was also a God of deep love whose heart breaks for people? What if this was the God we were talking about? Now, in that God, there can be hope. And after Ephesians 2 shows us our wretched selves, it shows us God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, this is God. And what did he do? Listen to this. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? If you were here for the sermon two weeks ago when we looked at the second part of chapter 1, let me say it again. Three things that God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. At the end of chapter 1, you'll remember that Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they would have the eyes of their heart enlightened so that they would know, among other things, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And then he describes the greatness of God's power, that it's the same power 
that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The perfect display of God's power was when he raised Jesus from death, seated him at God's own right hand in the place of both honor and authority, and exalted him over all other powers. God did this in and for Jesus. And apparently, God exercised that same power in the same way toward us. For in the very next breath, Paul says, we have been made alive We have been raised up with him. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. You were dead in sin, bound to Satan, children of wrath, but God has made you alive in Christ, raised you up with Christ, and even exalted you in Christ. You were dead in sin, you're alive in Christ. You were children of wrath, you were chosen in Christ for adoption as children of God. You were slaves to sin and to Satan, now you're seated with Christ at the right hand of the throne of heaven. No wonder Paul said in chapter 1 that he prayed that their eyes would be opened, that they might know this. I pray that our eyes would be opened, that we might know this too. This is the ultimate rags to riches story. Justinian was born a peasant and became Roman emperor. Andrew Carnegie was born in poverty and became one of the wealthiest men in America. Oprah Winfrey wore burlap dresses as a child. But their stories are nothing, nothing compared to our story. But if the first verses of Ephesians 2 show us how much we have to be humble about, and then we find out how exalted our position in Christ is, nevertheless, our cause for humility remains. For we're reminded twice in this passage that it is purely grace on God's part that we have been saved from our sin and saved from God's wrath. Verse 5, first time, by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, second time, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And then to be even more specific, explicit, he continues, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. One biblical commentator has said this, we shall not be able to strut around heaven. Heaven will be filled with the exploits of Christ and the praise of God. And to quote J.I. Packer again in his book, Knowing God, this is what he says. God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards sinners. As such, it has the nature of grace and mercy. It is an outgoing of God in kindness, which not merely is undeserved, but is actually contrary to what we deserve. For the objects of God's love are rational creatures who have broken God's law, whose nature is corrupt in God's sight, and who merit only condemnation and final banishment from his presence. It is staggering, he says, that God should love sinners, yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely and, one would have thought, unlovable, There was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it forth. Nothing in us could attract or prompt it. Love among persons is awakened by something in the beloved, but the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, uncaused. 
God loves people because he has chosen to love them, and no reason for his love can be given save for his own sovereign good pleasure. All grace. And so as the Bible says elsewhere, boasting is excluded. No room for it. When the Reverend Paul Gibson retired as from being chaplain at Ridley Hall, Cambridge in England, a portrait was commissioned in his honor, a portrait of himself. And when it was unveiled, he complimented the artist by saying that in future years, when people saw the painting, nobody would ask, who is that man? But they would ask, who painted that portrait? In our stunning salvation from sin, from death, from wrath, points not to us, but to the artist, the one who did the work, to God. And we are saved, Ephesians 2 says, so that God's kindness might be put on display and he receive all the honor for it. God's grace is not a small grace. God did not just extend to us a minor favor. And again, to use the analogy that Ephesians 2 uses, God did not, as it were, cure our cold or our flu. He didn't even pull us back from the brink of death when the death rattle was in our throats, as amazing as that would have been. He rescued us after we had died. And he raised us up. Our condition was immeasurably hopeless. We needed an immeasurable grace. Verses 6 and 7. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And wretch is the right word if God's description of us in the first verses of chapter 2 is right. And amazing is also the right word to describe his grace. It is a grace that is greater than our sin. The last verse in this passage, verse 10, brings us back to one more crucial consideration, and its placement in this passage is also crucial. It says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's rescue of us from sin and the fact of our being newly created in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 calls us new creations, is so that we might live a new kind of life, a life of good works. And two things to notice about these good works. First, that our doing of these good works comes after we have been saved by grace. And that's why it comes at the end of this passage. We do not do good works so that we will be saved. We do good works because we have been saved. Charles Spurgeon said, works of righteousness are the fruit of salvation, and the root must come before the fruit. The Lord saves his people out of clear, unmixed, undiluted mercy and grace and for no other reason. And so many people, I think, are hoping that God will accept them someday because they have done good. Even many of us as Christians are trying to earn God's grace after the fact, thinking that it's our continued good performance that ultimately tips the scales in our favor. And that is, not to put too fine a point on it, a lie from hell. 
if we try to measure up, to do work in the church or try to minimize the sin factor in our lives, if we try to measure up so that we don't jeopardize our salvation, we've missed it entirely. As if God would allow to die again one whom he has raised up in Christ. As if God would cast away the child that he's adopted into his family. What kind of father does that? If we are depending in any way on our good works to buy our way into heaven, we have fundamentally misunderstood the Christian gospel. Salvation by grace results in our doing good works. Salvation does not result from our doing good works. If that was true, there would be no grace at all. That's the first thing to notice, that it comes after we have been saved. The second thing to notice is something that's really obscured in the New International Version. And I want to point it out. Uh, The NIV translations of verses 2, where it says, dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live, and verse 10, the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do, makes it sound like God has a checklist for us, that on Sunday, June 27, you need to make dinner for your spouse and call your mom, visit your sick friend, and that there is a blueprint of certain good works, an agenda that God has for you, and the secret to living is to discern what God's will is. What are those things? What does God want me to do? But the English Standard Version, again, recognizes that the same word is used in verses 2 and 10. The trespasses, in, in, the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And verse 10, good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the point is simply this, that God has saved us from sin so that we would walk differently, that we would live differently. It's not about God's to-do list for us. It's about living a new kind of life. Back to chapter 1, verse 5, that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And we wonder sometimes, what is God's will for me? If by that we mean, what should my career be? Whom should I marry? Should I buy this house? Should I move to this city? When we wonder about God's will, we're often just asking, what's God's to-do list for me? What are the good deeds that God has prepared for me to do? I've always thought that we know God's will for our lives just from the scripture. Love one another. Live with humility, generosity, integrity. Don't be ruled by anger or addiction or fear. Seek God's honor above your own comfort. Provide for the poor among you. Resist temptation. Know God. And as we do these things, as we walk out our new life in these ways, the more specific things will take care of themselves. But here, too, this kind of daily walking can only come after we've been saved. Dead people don't walk. And those who follow the ways of this world and the prince of the power of the air cannot, at the same time, walk in the good works that God has for us. We must be saved first. So now we come to the heart of the matter. If you are a Christian today, what is the appropriate response God's word. Again, two things. First and most importantly, worship. 
Worship. Let your, let your heart well up with gratitude for God's grace toward you. Let it overflow in adoration of this God who has done an unimaginably great thing for you. Do we realize from what depths God has rescued us and to what heights he has raised us? Do you know the reality of your sin in all of its vileness and depravity? Do you know what it means to be dead and enslaved? For only then do you know the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness to you in Christ Jesus. And what can we do then but fall on our knees and our faces in awe of God and say he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Worship and adoration is the first response. And the second, of course, is then to choose to walk in the good works, in the new life for which you have been recreated in Christ Jesus. And again, it's only the knowledge of God that fosters that. When we don't know the grace of God, our good works become empty duty, a vain attempt at securing God's favor. But it's those who experience God's grace who walk in good works most naturally and with fullness of joy and with no sense of, well, I suppose I ought to. Worship and adoration are logically first, and good works arise from that as fruit is born by a tree. Will you worship and adore, and will you say, yes, I will walk in a lifestyle of good works? of humility and generosity and service and love and compassion and integrity and wisdom. Now, some of you this morning may never have known what it means to respond to the grace of God. Maybe you've never identified yourself as a Christian at all. Or maybe you've been religious all your life, trying to earn your forgiveness by being good. In either case... As I said before, on the authority of God's word, I tell you what no one else might ever tell you, that you are dead in your sins and in danger of the wrath of God, and that it is only the grace of God that holds any hope for you. It is by grace you are saved, through faith. Faith is that growing consciousness that Jesus died for your sins and that your goodness has no merit to rescue you from judgment. Faith is that decision to throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, unless you rescue me, I am undone. Faith is that action by which you place yourself under the lordship of God, let yourself be loved as a child of God, and embrace the new life to which God has called you. And even the faith itself is a work of God in you, a gift of grace. And if you sense that faith stirring in you right now and you want to respond to it, very simple. It's merely the affirmation that, yes, I am a sinner who walks not in the ways of God or under his lordship and therefore am dead in my sins and deserving of God's wrath. Yes, I know that Jesus' death on the cross is God's gracious provision for my sins and that in dying he took upon himself the judgment of God for my sins. And yes, I throw myself in the grace and mercy of God, affirm that he loves me, and choose to live from now on under his good leadership. If you want to become a Christian today, if this is brand new or whether you've gone to church for decades, I'm going to ask you to come up to the front here in just a moment. 
I want to close with, actually, no, I'm going to close with this. We're saying this this morning. In Christ alone who took on flesh, wholeness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. And no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns and calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I'll stand. God, in loving grace expressed in Christ Jesus, has brought us from death to life and given us kindness instead of wrath. Let's pray. It's almost impossible to articulate, Lord, any, any words. I mean, your own words are best. We acknowledge how far gone we were. And we are so deeply grateful that you are a God of mercy and love and grace and kindness who is not just good enough to rescue us, but strong enough to do it. That the death of Christ for us was an act of power on your part. Lord, I guess just at the end of the service, I simply pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to know this reality. And depending on who we are and where we are this morning, that you would evoke in us either worship or repentance. Praise and honor and glory be to you, our great Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.